we're going to continue our study on stewardship today. Last week or a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the principle of sowing and how important it is to be a bountiful sower because the people who receive the benefit of our bountiful sowing get more benefit. And God then also decides to give us a reciprocal benefit and that whatever we sow comes back to us in bountiful ways if we sow bountifully. Today we're going to talk about stewardship with respect to tithing. And in the following week, when I preach, we're going to talk about stewardship of our relationships, and we'll be done. Turn with me over to the book of Malachi. And as you're turning there, I found something on the Internet. Pastor Jim shared this about three or two or three months ago, and he did it on a Wednesday night. But I wanted to share it with you. <clears throat> um, it's, it's, it's called Unnecessary Instructions. Things that appeared on items of use that you just scratch your head and say, they really had to say that? On a spray can, excuse me, a can of spray paint, said, do not spray in your face. <laughs> in a dishwasher manual, do not allow children to play in the dishwasher. On a toaster, don't use underwater. Like somebody really thought the toast would be good, toast it underwater. Hey, scratch your head, you had to put that on the toaster. On a can of Sansbury peanuts, warning, contains nuts. <laughs> really? Really? On an American Airlines packet of nuts, instructions, open packet and eat nuts. <laughs> yeah, so, somebody couldn't figure that out. On a Marks and Spencer bread pudding packet, this product will be hot after heating. On a mattress, do not attempt to swallow. Really? <laughs> On a Sears hairdryer, do not use while sleeping. Are you kidding me? Who does that? They had to tell somebody that. On a blowtorch, not to be used for drying hair. Come on now. Come on now. You got to put that on the blowtorch. You know why they did it, don't you? Somebody did that. <laughs> on a box of, Rowenta, uh, of a Rowenta iron, do not iron clothes on body. And on a Superman child's costume, wearing this garment does not enable you to fly. I thought they were funny. Malachi, chapter 3. Title of the message is Stewardship, Tithing. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this says the Lord of hosts if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is not room enough for it and it overflows then I verse 11 will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground nor will your vine cast nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes says the Lord of hosts all the nation will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God help us as we study. Malachi is writing in the middle part of the 5th century B.C., prophesying. It's about when Nehemiah came back from his captivity with his third return of exiles from Babylon. 
This was the period of time when Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, had been taken captive by Babylon in 586 B.C. And they were returning in shifts. Some came back about 530, 525 and rebuilt the temple. Ezra, Zerubbabel were part of that. And they finished it somewhere around 515 B.C. Another group came back as well. And then Nehemiah brought a third group. And this third group was there to repair the walls because temple worship had been reestablished. But the walls of the city had not been rebuilt from the time that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it some 120 years earlier, 140 years earlier, a long time. And Malachi, we believe, was a part of that process. Now, we don't see him prophesying about the walls, so we think that he was either right before Nehemiah came or after, and he was not needed in order to encourage the people to participate in the rebuilding project. But we do know that he was during that time period. This is the last prophet of the Old Testament. The next one we see on the scene is John the Baptist. That's New Testament. And Malachi's doing everything he possibly can to try to help the people of God. I mean, they are a messed up group. They've restored temple worship, but they haven't restored temple worship. They've done all the perfunctory things, but they're not worshiping correctly. They may do things right on the given time when it's time for everybody to come into the house, but outside of the house, they're not doing right. He comments on them and says, why are you divorcing your wives and changing them like you change clothes? What's wrong with you? Stop that. I hate divorce. You priests, why are you sacrificing animals to me that you wouldn't even eat? They're diseased. They're blind. They're lame. I don't take that. If you don't want it, neither do I. And then he says to him about tithing, what's wrong with you? Why are you robbing me? Now, this is the first time he associates criminal activity with lack of giving. He says, why are you robbing me? Now, tithing is one of these things that we consider in Old Testament law. But tithing predates the law, and it extends past the law. But it is incorporated in the law. And let me tell you a little bit about the law and its, its, its distinctions and regulations, its categories. We looked a few weeks ago at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. And Moses is giving a second iteration of the law to the people of Israel that were about to inherit the promised land. The first generation who had come out of Egypt, the Exodus, had died. And the second generation needed to hear the law for themselves. They heard it through their parents. Now they needed to hear it again because they were the mature, responsible ones who were supposed to carry it out. In the second iteration, Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, Be sure that you do not, verse 11, forget the Lord your God by not observing and obeying his laws, his ordinances, and his statutes. Laws, ordinances, and statutes. Moses is not using three terms that say the same thing in order to reemphasize one point. He's actually talking about three distinctions within the category of regulations that the Israelites had to, had to follow. The law, ordinances, and statutes. The law represented the Ten Commandments. This this part of his exhortation, the Ten Commandments, were immutable, unchangeable, and as long as heaven and earth existed, these laws will. As, not, not talking about the heaven God's in, talking about the heavens. As long as order on the planet exists and the universe exists, these laws will exist because they work as long as human beings will work them. And they work in any setting at any time. They never need to be changed. They are immutable and they are perfect. Those laws 
as beautiful as they are and as much as I, I, I love them. They kind of fit in the category, though, of unnecessary instructions. I mean, not from our perspective. Remember, the law was inserted somewhere around. We don't know how old the world is. We don't. And we don't know when God created Adam and Eve. We don't. We know it was a long time ago. But there's more time that people lived without the law than they lived with it. The law was inserted, just put in the middle of time, because some people took a blowtorch to their hair. Some folk thought a mattress tasted really good. I mean, the law are really a bunch of unnecessary instructions. From heaven's perspective, I imagine the angels, when God gave it to Moses, the angels said, you got to tell them that. You, wait, you got to tell them to have no other God before you? You, 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 shouldn't, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have. You got to tell them to not make any graven images? You got to tell them to revere your name? Come, come on, God, really? They ought to get that. They really? You got to tell them to rest? I mean, <laughs> you got to tell them to rest. You got to. Their body is weary. They're lying in the bed, and they're still trying to do it ten days in a row. You got to tell them to rest. You got to tell them to honor their mom and dad. To say thank you. Why you got to tell them that? Come on now, you don't have to tell them not to murder each other, do you? You, you don't have to tell them. You, you don't have. You're going to tell them that too. You got you to gotta tell them not to take each other's stuff. Really? They won't respect each other just naturally? He said I do to that woman. You got to tell him not to commit adultery? He made a life commitment to her. You have to tell him not to... What's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? You got to tell, tell them not to be envious of somebody else's stuff when you are the provider of all they need. Not to be covetous. You got to tell them that. You really have, you have to tell them not to lie to one another. To, be tr- to not say somebody did something when they didn't do it. You got to tell them not to bear false witness again. Come on, God, they ought to get it, shouldn't they? Unnecessary instructions. And we consider them high and lofty. These are things we just ought to get. I mean, I love my Ten Commandments. As you see, I know them by heart. But they make me cry that God had to tell me that. Ladies, when you get married and your husband asks you, when's our anniversary again? You have to tell them when your birthday is. Now, when you get the gift, you'll be happy. But something's missing. Something's missing. Why did I have to tell you? Where's your brain? Sin makes us stupid. And I am the chief stupidest. 
Sin makes us stupid so that we have to have unnecessary instructions. Because somebody took a blowtorch to their hair. Laws. Then there were ordinances. The ordinances were things that came as a result of adjudicated issues. There was a, uh, a family of daughters who had a father named Zelophehad. And Zelophehad had passed away. He was a part of the first generation that came out of Egypt. Numbers 27. And these daughters came to Moses realizing this, that the inheritance of the land was based upon the father passing down the land to his son. But Zelophehad had no, no sons. All he had was daughters. And so all the daughters, four or five of them, came to Moses and said, listen, our daddy, he was a pretty good man. He died in the wilderness, but he wasn't wicked like those who got swallowed up by the earth. He was generally okay. So I'm just letting you know, FYI, he wasn't really bad. But he had no sons. And so when we get in the promised land, that land that was given to him isn't coming to his family. So we're wanting to know that in this case, might you let us as daughters inherit our father's property? Moses went to God. God said, absolutely, make that happen. And not only let, let it be for them, but let it be a law and, a, and an ordinance for all generations that whenever a man does not have a son, but he has daughters, the property shall not pass to his brother or nearest kin of relative, that, nearest kin that is a male. It'll pass to his daughters. So here we have a law that God created that wasn't needed when they were in, in Egypt because they had no promised land. But now that they were going in the promised land, God instituted a rule that was not just for that family, but for everybody who would come afterwards. And that was, became an ordinance for everybody to follow. And then there were statutes. Statutes were those regulations that came as a result of circumstance and situations. Some of them were temporal. Some of them were long-term. You look at dietary laws. Dietary laws had two applications. One, ceremonially being clean or unclean. Ceremonially clean or ceremonially unclean. Meant that you were able to worship or you weren't. Now, the application had spiritual implication, shadowing for what it was like for us to, to come into the, the new covenant. That we can't come into God without being clean. We are unclean before we are washed by his blood. The uncleanliness of our life, our sin, our selfishness, our attitudes, the things that we've been involved with from which we have not repented yet, that we, we may not be doing anymore, but we haven't turned our back on it. All those things prohibit us from fellowshipping with God the way we should until we do the prescribed thing that helps us become clean, repenting, asking for forgiveness, and letting the blood of Christ wash over our sins, then we are not yet presentable to come before God. That makes us clean. But when we are clean, that's it. We're clean forever. The blood of Christ washes us whole. In the Old Testament, blood cleansed from those who were unclean. But it wasn't the blood of Christ, it was the blood of animals. And when somebody was unclean, they had to give a sacrifice in order to get themselves cleansed. If somebody was unclean, that was a type of what it would look like when we were spiritually not right, not just naturally not right. And so God had an order that allowed people to carry on something that they could reflect back on and say, God showed us what it was like in the natural so we can understand what it was like in the spiritual when the reality of our own sin nature came into to, to view. But not only did it have ramifications naturally, but it had ramifications, excuse me, ramifications spiritually, but it had ramifications naturally. And that the food that the Israelites were supposed to eat 
was food that was healthy for you. And generally, the ones that they weren't supposed to eat were those animals that did not eat good things. So when you ate an animal that did not eat good things, you didn't eat a good animal. So a pig just ate anything. It was a scavenger. That's why you couldn't eat it, not because somehow it, it was naturally just nasty. It just didn't do right. And those animals that were categorized as not doing right were those which either divided the hoof and did not chew the cud or did chew the cud and did not divide the hoof. Couldn't touch those. You couldn't eat an animal with a paw. You couldn't eat a bird of prey. And you couldn't eat a fish if it didn't have scales and fins. We can eat anything we want and still remain spiritually clean because Christ has cleansed us and those things were just a sign of what it was like to not be clean so the people would understand what it meant to come into the presence of God needing to be clean from the blood of animals and then they would be clean. Now we are cleansed by the blood of Christ but practically if you continue to eat a whole lot of ribs you're going to have a closer walk with Jesus much quicker. So it has practical application, though no spiritual application to our New Testament reality. Are you with me? So if you eat a kosher diet, you're going to be healthy. You'll be as healthy as you possibly can be. And so there are things that you have to understand. Why is that law in effect? And how does it transfer through to the cross? Another rule they had where a guy, they said you build a house, you got to build a fence around your roof. And because the roofs were flat, they would entertain on the roof. And, you know, when you entertain with people, get a little wine, and all of a sudden, get too close to the edge of that, boom, dead. So, literally, that must have happened. So, God said, I want everybody who builds a house to build a fence around the roof. He cared about people. Now, would it be right, because the Bible said so, for us to say that if you build a house in Ashburn, you must build a fence on your roof? The Bible says so! The Bible says that. No. Because we have pitched roofs and nobody's throwing parties on a pitched roof. Do you understand? And so some things that are in the Bible are in there for a reason. And when that reason passes, you don't need it no more. But some things are in the Bible for a reason. And if the reason is still working, you still need it. Which brings us to tithing. Now, tithing is one of those things that allows the body of Christ to be what it should be. When God instituted it as a rule, he made it so that the two, two reasons. He made it so that the people could be blessed by their giving and he could pour out something upon them that they would not get otherwise because they were being benevolent and understanding that their God had given them resources and all they wanted to do was give back. The natural ramification was when they gave to the house of God, the house of God provided for them the spiritual benefit that they could not get on their own. It provided for the priests. It provided for the sacrifice of the animals. It provided for their housing. It provided for the culture that they needed in order to become the people they needed to be to worship well. So the 10% allowed for the spiritual environment to be perpetuated by the word of God on a regular basis And it didn't mean that every household member who happened to be the chief of their household needed to be a pastor in order to make their house right. They could actually go to church and find somebody, if they would, if you're a temple, go to temple and find somebody who could help them in their Bible because they were paid to do so. That reality 
still exists in New Testament world called the church. You still need a house in which to worship. You still need people who have understood their Bible and studied and have some life experience that can bring that down to you so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel regularly. You still need to learn how to be a good daddy, how to be a good employee, how to be a good mama, how to be a good son. What does it mean to be an excellent minister of the gospel? You need to be equipped in every area of your life, and that is what the church is supposed to do. It is to provide atmosphere. It is to provide continence. It is to to provide the kind of, of, of continuation of the ministry of the gospel that allows for structured and targeted ministry to touch the outside world so that this kingdom can progress. Generally speaking, it doesn't do it as effectively in households without the inspiration of a congregation as it does with one, i.e. the Easter egg hunt. Would you have one on your own if we didn't help you? Would you? Have you ever had one without us? (laughs) Point. And if you did have one, It may have been for your friends and your kids. We're trying to get the people you don't know in your neighborhood. This is why the church... And if the same institution, though New Testament reality now, if the same institution is in need of doing the same thing that God wanted done in the Old Testament, now then the same resources need to be pulled over to the New Testament that were used in the Old Testament. Practical. Called the tithe. That's how it happened. To my text. <laughs> Situation. Malachi's working it. Best he knows how. And he says, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? They say, how? In the form of tithe and offering. The whole nation of you. Thieves. Wow. Cognitive amnesia. Oxymoronic. I got that. Because if you have cognizance, you don't have amnesia. But these folk knew what to do and forgot. Knew what to do every day. Woke up having the word of God. Knowing exactly what they ought to give. When they ought to give it. How they ought to give it. And they still didn't do it. Cognitive. How have we robbed you? Now this is the first time God has applied the metaphor of criminal behavior to the lack of giving. Have you ever seen the, the, the show Dumbest Criminals? Some of y'all ain't seen that. I don't know what's, what TV station it's on. But it, it, it gets cr- criminals on videotape. That's really bad if you're a criminal, by the way. <laughs> if that's your profession, you need a new one. You're on videotape, dude. They know who you are. And, and, and it shows them doing dumb, st- dumb stuff trying to, to, to commit their act. If a guy came up to you who you knew, your neighbor, across the street, stopped your car as you were going out to work, pointed a gun at you and said, give me your wallet, give me your car and your keys. I'm taking it. I said, Jim, <laughs> what, what are you doing? Jim, what are you doing? I'm, I'm robbing you. Jim, I know you. The police will be here in an hour. I know you. I know, but I'm, I'm robbing you. Go ahead, dude. You dial 911 
they chase him before he gets to the second light. <laughs> now, something's wrong with that guy. Something's wrong with him beyond the fact that he's, he's a criminal. He doesn't even steal right. God knows where you live. He knows your name. He knows your personality. He created you. He knows exactly everything about you. And he calls you a pickpocket. Calls you a thief when you don't tithe. And you are doing it in broad daylight. And somehow, you think you're going to get away with it. Maybe you're not the dumbest criminal, but you're close. <laughs> it is absolutely critical that we understand the motivation behind tithing is not one of obligation, but one of thanksgiving. Abram was a tremendous man. From Genesis 12 through 25 or 26, he was the icon of faith. And God calls him from Ur of the Chaldees place someplace around what we would now know as Babylon or Iraq. And he comes down and he lands in a place called Haran. And then God calls him from Haran, which is what we would now know as Syria, southern Syria, northern Lebanon. And says, I want you to come into the promised land. He didn't tell, tell him it was a promised land at the time. He just said, go and I'll show you when you get there. And he comes, but he has to bring his nephew Lot. He says, God told him, leave your family and everybody. So he left his family. But he had to bring his nephew Lot because Abram had a brother named Haran. And we think they named the place where his brother died the place called Haran from which he hailed in honor of his brother. His brother passed away. Abram was the eldest son. The eldest son, if the father had already passed away, which his father had named Terah, the eldest son then became responsible if any of his brothers passed away for their children, meaning their nephews. And so Abram became responsible for Haran's son, who was Lot. As he comes into the promised land, he takes Lot with him. And as you come into your promised land, generally speaking, you're going to have a lot of lots. You can't get rid of them. They're just part of your life. And Lot had issues. Lots of them. Argued with the principal hinge of history at this point about property when he should have woke up every day grateful I'm just glad I can be with you thank you Uncle Abe for caring for me it's just amazing God spoke to you and he's going to do something maybe I can get just a little bit from hanging around just to, just get a drip off your him and your garment or something that'd be great no 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 hey my sheep ain't got no place to eat because your sheep are eating up all the grass we're going to do something about that we got to talk Abram says, hold, hold, hold up, man, hold. Pick, choose any place you want to go. I'll go the other direction. I'm not going to fight with you about this. Lot looks up, sees the prettiest property in the, in the valley called Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and he goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. After a little bit, Sodom and Gomorrah decides it's a good idea to not pay tribute to a king to whom they were paying tribute prior. That king gets, four, gets three other kings with him and attacks Sodom and Gomorrah, who's aligned with three other kings. So it's four kings against five. Sodom and Gomorrah and their alliance lose to the four kings that attack them. 
they take Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three nations with them. Abram hears about it. He says, oh, man, I got to go get Lot. Now, I imagine all of his men were sitting there thinking, why? <laughs> the dude had a bad attitude. He asked for that. I mean, that's, that's what happens when you go that direction. I got to get him. He's my charge. All right. So 318 men in Abram's house trained. <laughs> Abram must have been a powerful trainer because these were cooks, shepherds, herdsmen, tailors. Somehow or another, in a minute, they became warriors. And he joined with another man named Mamre who had two brothers, Anna and Eshkel. And they went as family members and attacked four kings, four nations. Now, if you remember anything about your fourth and fifth grade sociology class, over in the Middle East, Mesopotamia, uh, the Sumerians, anybody? Do you remember anything about that? This is the period in which Abram lived. And each nation had anywhere from between five and 10,000 men in their army. Abram had 318 men trained in his house, and he had a couple other family members from another people that decided to join him. And they went, they got every one of Sodom and Gomorrah's citizens back, all of the materials back, and lot with them, and didn't lose one fella. An amazing victory in battle. Amazing. Astonishing. They come back to the promised land. And this guy comes out. They'd never seen before from a town called Salem. His name is Melchizedek. And he's bringing out bread and wine. And Melchizedek says, Blessed be the God of Abraham most high. You have done something amazing today. I've got to acknowledge it. Now, Melchizedek represents... A type of Christ, an Old Testament version, we call it a Christophany. And that Salem means peace, and Melchizedek was king, king of peace, prince of peace, ruler of peace. <laughs> Bringing out bread and wine, oh, it's a beautiful picture. Communion in the Old Testament, oh, it's, oh you, you get real happy. I know how to get happy, but I don't have time. Brings it out, says, you are amazing, let me offer you something here. And it says that Abram did this. He gave him a tenth of all. Why? He realized, I could not have done this without my God. 318 men and and Bubba and and Jim and John over here. (laughs) We beat four nations. And we got everyone back. Lord, I am so grateful. I am so, here, I give you a tenth of everything I got. As, as in the representative on earth, I'm going to give it to him. He was the priest and king of Salem. Amazing. Then Sodom, king of Sodom, comes to him. Now, the reason the king of, of Salem, Melchizedek, was so impressed with Abram is not because he just wrought a great victory, but who he sacrificed for. He literally laid his life down for a bunch of people that everybody thought should get what they got. Thank you. Thank you, kings to the north. You have rid us of a serious problem because those Sodomites, those Gomorans, oh, we are glad they are gone. I don't know anybody, Melchizedek would have said, that would have sacrificed their life for them. They were a mess. They were horrible. They were the definition of ungrateful and inhospitable people. We are glad they are gone. Yet you went and sacrificed to bring them back. 
That's why Melchizedek came out and said, there's nobody like you in this land. Nobody. Let me recognize you. Now, before we get all high and mighty about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's important that we realize that in many ways we are like them. Sodom came to Abram at the end of the battle. He said this. Got, a, got an idea. You and me, we're going to strike a deal. You take all the stuff. I'll give you the stuff. But you give me the people. Let's bargain. Let's go back and forth right now. What rescued person ever bargains with their rescuer? What should, what one word? You can make it two. What two words should the rescued say to the rescuer? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You don't have a guy that's been mowed over by an avalanche, buried 20 feet under, CNN's there, everybody, the, the helicopter is rolling, and they finally pull the guy up and say, listen, I want to barter the book deal before you pull me in. I know somebody going to write something about this. I just want to make sure I get the credit. I imagine the pilots would say, lower him back. He ain't ready to be rescued yet. <laughs> That's, that was their ruler. He was the best of the people. And again, before we get too high and mighty, how many times did we walk by the cross? Say later, I'm not interested. Catch you later, God. I'm not, I, I got too much to do. But by the way, I need an A on this test, so if you could, like, help me out here, I will go to church on Sunday. Oh, Lord, he is good looking. Mm, 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 mm. If you give me, I'll bring him to church. I will, I'll take him to church. You give me an opportunity with that one right there. Right there, that man. Mm-hmm. He got a job, too. Yes, sir. How many times did we barter with God before we surrendered? How many times? And you talk about being undeserving of rescuing. Nobody more than me. Nobody more than you. Why won't you tithe again? Are you not grateful enough? Has he not done enough? Doesn't it just flow from you? Do you actually need an unnecessary instruction? Tithe? It ought to just flow from your soul. To my outline as I close. There was a problem, situation. Cognitive amnesia. You're robbing me. Tithes and offerings. We didn't even know that. And you're cursed as a result. You got issues going in your life that stem directly from your disobedience. You are reaping the harvest of your your poor action. But God is so merciful and so kind. He says this, I can stop that. I can put the curse in reverse. I can make it as if it never occurred. If you'll, you'll just bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The tithe is 10%. And when he says whole tithe... There were a couple of tithes that the nation of Israel needed to give. 
It wasn't just 10% of their income. There was also a second tithe that every third year they were to give a tithe of their produce for the widow, the orphan, and the priest. So they were to give a double tithe in the third year, which represented at least 13% of their income over a three-year period. And they had offerings on top of that. So when God says, you're robbing, robbing me, the whole nation of you, in tithes and offerings, he's talking about in every way I prescribed. You're picking my pocket. It's my money. Give it back to me. Now, even though it's his money, and, and he, he should do nothing to bless the thief. He blesses the thief. He says, I'm going to stop all the curse. I'm going to reverse it all. And if you bring the tithe back into my house, watch what I'll do for you. And in fact, if you don't believe me, just test me. I know you may not have much faith, but test me. Test me. You put the test on me, not on you. Put it on me. Just step out. Close your eyes and just walk out there for a minute and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you cannot contain. And that imagery, all that imagery, it's, it's, it's Noahic. It's, it's, it's deluge talk. It's flood talk. I open the windows of heaven and flood a blessing on you that you are not able to contain. Oh, why won't you tithe again? You trying to fight God over his blessing you? And he said, I'll rebuke the devourer. That which comes to, to give you a flat tire before your tires run out. That moth that comes to eat at your clothes. That rust that makes your automobile not last. I'll rebuke the devourer for you. And you'll be called a blessed people by everybody else. In other words, it won't be, it won't be a subjective blessing that you have. Everybody will look at you and say, whoa. Mike. My God in heaven, look at what God is. How'd they get there? Who are they? Everybody will notice from the outside how blessed you are. And you will be a delightful land. A place where people want to come and be. And you'll be happy about living in it. Tithing is one of the greatest blessings we get to do. And as I close, there was a man who wasn't making a lot of money. He had three kids came to his pastor, made $15,000 as a landscaper working on a team. And the pastor was encouraging him to tithe. And he said, I just, don't, I just don't have enough money to tithe. I got three kids. And <laughs> I just can't do it. And he says, well, you really can't afford not to tithe. First of all, that 1500 is not going to break you, and it surely won't make you. You need to give it because God will open up blessings for you. So reluctantly, the man gave it. Three years later, he wound up owning his own landscaping company, making $150,000 a year. And he was getting ready to write his tithe check for fifteen grand. He came to the pastor and said, you know, I was getting ready to write this check, and I realized it's a whole lot more than what I gave before, and gosh, $15,000, that's a lot for the church. I was thinking maybe I give maybe, you know, half of that, and you really don't need all that money, do you? I mean, you're a church. You shouldn't be that prosperous. The pastor said, I, I, I understand, I understand. You're concerned about the amount of the gift and that you feel it's really too generous. He said, yeah, sort of, yeah. Okay. He said, pray with me. 
took his hand and he said, Lord, I pray that you would reduce this man's salary so that he feels comfortable enough to tithe in Jesus. He said, no, 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 wait, 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 don't pray that prayer. Stop that prayer. Stop that prayer. Stop it. Come back prayer. Come back prayer. <laughs> By the grace of God, in 30 years of walk, 33 years of walking with him, Never missed a tithe. Never. When I was making $50 a month, God got five and more. He's blessed me far beyond what I could ask for. And that's not because Brett was so good. That's because he's so gracious. You do what he says. Out of the abundance of your soul, without needing an unnecessary instruction, it'll make you happier because it will be an act of worship rather than just an obligatory act. And God will pour out good stuff on you. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for all that you are and all that you do. There really is nobody like you. Help us to obey you to the nth degree.